Welcome to another night of Warrior Reads. As always, make sure that you've handled anything before bed, that the room is dark, and that you're in a comfortable position. Remember, as you're listening, if you get excited by a story or interested, don't worry about it. Now is not the time for your mind to be racing. Now is the time for your mind to be resting. As always, we'll have copies of the recordings available on our website, as well as even the ability to order it should you want to in the morning. Now is the time for your reward for a good day lived or a reminder to be a warrior tomorrow. I'll give you about five seconds to clear your head and then we'll begin. Welcome warriors. Tonight, our selection is from the book, Great Warriors. The True Stories of Outstanding Leaders by Kenneth Allen Tonight we will be going through a few short stories of great warriors in history. Some you might know well, and some you might not. These warriors of the past have shaped the world we know today and have left a legacy of inspiration for anyone who seeks to become great and be the best leader they can be. The stories of ancient and long-past heroes echo into the present, and they're worth hearing. Because you are a warrior on the path to being a better you. So allow their struggles and world-changing willpower to ignite your inner warrior to continue your path with everything you've got. As always, you can read this book at any time in the future, and it's worth reading. But as you let go of the day and prepare for well-deserved rest, you're invited to see the battles take place on the field and within the hearts and minds of the warriors you're going to hear about, and see yourself and your path within theirs. Allow the passion and strength and courage of their stories to inspire you on your journey to become reborn as the hero of your own story. So relax and enjoy. First up is Achilles, the Trojan War hero. Every man in the Greek nation was furious. Helen, the most beautiful girl in the world, had been stolen away from her husband, Menelaus, king of Sparta, by Paris, son of Priam, king of Troy. She had to be rescued, even though it meant war. Soon, a great armada of ships set out from Greece and the surrounding islands, heading for Troy. In overall command of the forces was Agamemnon, the brother of King Menelaus. With him went the greatest warrior of the Greek army, Achilles, son of Peleus, and Thetis. Thetis had been warned that her son might die young, and when he was a baby, had dipped him into the river Styx to make him invulnerable. Only his heel, by which she had held him, remained uncovered by the water. The Trojan War was to last for ten years, 
and Achilles fought in many battles. From one city he raided. He captured a beautiful girl named Briseis, whom he loved dearly. Agamemnon, his commander, took Briseis from him. This angered Achilles so much that for a time he refused to fight. Patrocles, Achilles' friend, put on Achilles' armor and fought in his place. He was killed by the Trojan hero Hector, son of King Priam, who thought it was Achilles himself. When he heard of this, Achilles immediately went out to avenge his friend, wearing armor newly made for him by Hephaestus, the god of metalworking. Achilles slew Hector in single combat and tied the body of the dead warrior to the tail of his chariot. He then drove it several times around the walls of Troy. Hector's father, King Priam, was forced to enter the Greek camp to beg for his son's body so he could give it a ceremonial burial. The body was washed and then burned while the Trojan people mourned their hero. But Hector was soon avenged. During a skirmish, Paris, his brother, shot a poisoned arrow into Achilles' unprotected heel, killing him. From this incident comes the expression Achilles' heel, meaning a vulnerable spot. Achilles' body was also burned and the ashes, together with those of his friend Patrocles, were burned in a golden urn on a headland high above the sea. The fighting had now reached its tenth long year, and still Troy remained untaken. The Greeks grew weary until the wise King Odysseus hit upon a brilliant idea which was sure to dupe the Trojans. The Greek fleet sailed away, leaving only the remains of their camp and a huge wooden horse standing on the shore. The unsuspecting Trojans were jubilant and hauled the trophy into their city, rejoicing that the war was over at last. The rejoicing soon ended. At midnight, the Greek warriors who had hidden inside the horse crept out. They opened the gates of the city and led in the men from the Greek fleet which had returned to Troy under the cover of darkness. Troy was destroyed, and Menelaus was reunited again with his beautiful wife, Helen. The cause of the long war, and indirectly of the death of Achilles. The legend of this brave hero's deeds has inspired many other great men. Hannibal, the Carthaginian Hamilcar Barca, ruler of Carthage and a mighty warrior, was about to go to war. As he was making an offering to his gods, he turned to Hannibal, his nine-year-old son, and asked him if he would like to go to war. When the boy nodded eagerly, his father made him swear an oath of eternal hatred to Rome. Hannibal had always lived in an atmosphere of war. In time, his genius as a soldier became so respected that today he is regarded as one of the greatest warriors who ever lived. He learned the art of fighting beside his father, who was killed in battle. He served under his brother-in-law, Hasdrubal, 
who commanded the dreaded Carthaginian cavalry. And when he died, Hannibal was appointed the leader of the army. Age 25, he headed a strong force of mercenaries and began the Second Punic War against the Romans, which lasted for 17 years, from 218 to 201 BC. The Romans expected to hit Hannibal in Spain, but when they sent an army there, they found that he had moved on. Hannibal's army of 60,000 foot soldiers, 18,000 cavalry, and three dozen war elephants had set off to cross the mountain passes into Italy. His men were forced to struggle through the thick snow of the Alps. They crossed raging mountain torrents and through rocky passes where a sudden noise could start an avalanche. Would it really be possible to cross the Alps with elephants? Hannibal proved it was when he brought more than half of his army into Italian soil. The Romans were astounded and hurriedly sent an army to meet Hannibal's forces. The Romans suffered heavy losses in two battles with the enemy by the river Trebia and Lake Trasmine. Now the road to Rome itself was wide open, but instead of taking the obvious route, Hannibal led his men southwards and fought against the largest Roman army that had ever gone into action. Despite the size of the opposition, Hannibal's army almost annihilated the Roman army at the Battle of Cana, where over 70,000 Romans were killed or captured. It was Rome's worst defeat. Hannibal's outflanking tactics had overcome the superiority of the legionnaires. Following this triumph, Hannibal's fortunes changed dramatically. His army was shrinking, and his men were tired of endless campaigning. When Hannibal heard that a Roman army planned to attack his capital city, Carthage, he left for home immediately. He lost the final battle against Rome at Zama in 202 BC. The Roman general, Scipio, used Hannibal's own tactics but had better troops at his disposal. The Romans demanded that Hannibal be handed over to them as a prize captive, but he fled for refuge to King Antiochus and later King Prusius in Asia Minor. He committed suicide by taking poison in 183 BC, when Prusius was about to surrender him to the Romans. Hannibal, the military genius, inspired the Romans with awe, and Hannibal is at the gates became a rallying call in later times. Our next story is about Akbar of the Mughal Empire. The grandson of Genghis Khan, Kublai, followed in his footsteps and became the ruler of more people than any monarch before him. After his death, his great empire fell apart, but many of his descendants also became famous. One was the Mughal chieftain of Turkestan, Timur, known as Tamburlaine the Great. A century later, another of Genghis Khan's descendants, called Babur, became the military conqueror of northern India and founder of the great Mughal Empire of India. By the time Akbar came to the throne 
1556. India was a divided land because of the weakness of Humayun, Akbar's father. Akbar was only 13 when he became emperor, but he was helped by his guardian, Bairam Khan, who had been one of his father's most trusted generals. He was ruler of Delhi, Agra, and Sembahal, but powerful enemies surrounded him. Soon, a huge army under the leadership of Hemu attacked Delhi. It consisted of 100,000 foot soldiers and cavalry, and 1,500 elephants. When they met in battle in November 1556, Akbar's forces totaled only 20,000, and the Mughals were saved only by a lucky accident. An arrow struck Hemu in the eye, and he fell unconscious. His army, now without a leader, turned and ran. Akbar commanded one of the divisions in battle, but his heart was not really in warfare. He much preferred to hunt and play polo. He left most of his control to his advisor, Bayram, who eventually tried to gain too much power and was captured by Akbar's men as a rebel. Akbar spared Bayram's life, but he was killed shortly afterwards by an Afghan enemy who bore him a grudge. Akbar left the problems of war and government to his family until his foster brother Adham Khan killed Akbar's chief minister. Akbar was so furious that he killed his foster brother. At 19 years of age, he became a master of his empire. He improved his organization both in military and civil matters, and kept close watch on his nobles, who ran the army and his provinces and districts. He became noted for his religious tolerance and married a Hindu princess from the Rajput tribes of northern India. The Rajputs were the greatest warriors in India and were to fight with the Mughals for the next century. Akbar continued the policy of expanding his empire at every opportunity, usually under the guise of engaging in hunting. He used an assortment of arms in addition to heavily armored war elephants, which were kept in the rear. At the Battle of Jitor in 1567, Akbar used mining and the sabat, or covered way, to attack the fort. Eventually, a year later, the fort was captured and a brutal massacre followed. When Akbar died in 1605, the Mughal Empire was secure because he had turned his enemies into strong allies by being firm, kind, and just to his subjects. And now we go to Sweden to hear about Gustavus Adolphus, the king of Sweden. Almost from the day of his birth, Prince Gustavus Adolphus was trained for the time when he would become king of Sweden. Even at the early age of nine, he began to share in his father's government and impress those who came into contact with him and with his kingly manner and wide knowledge. On the death of his father in 1611, he came to the throne aged only 17, when he was soon a popular leader, with nobles and ordinary people alike. His self-confidence soon spread to his subjects 
especially when they fought with him in war. For many years, Sweden had been dominated by Denmark, which had taken much of its land. Gustavus was determined to win it back. But first, he had to train his army. He increased the discipline and rigid battle training of all the men. He cleverly linked pikemen and musketeers, and increased the numbers of musketeers used in battle. He also used the slavu, a method by which the Swedes could fire a simultaneous three-rank volley when the enemy was almost upon them. The Swedish army was now almost invincible, and before he was 20 years old, Gustavus had forced Denmark to return territory taken from Sweden. By 1630, he had enlarged his kingdom around the whole eastern shore of the Baltic Sea, having successfully fought against Russian and Polish forces. Gustavus wanted to help the Protestant cause in Germany. With the aid of France, he entered the Thirty Years' War, which lasted from 1618 to 1648. The Swedish army was now the best equipped, best trained, best disciplined fighting force since the Roman legions. The men had proper uniforms, which protected them from the weather, and flintlock muskets, which meant faster and more accurate firing. The soldiers were supplied from depots instead of foraging and living off the land. They were forbidden to attack hospitals, churches, and schools, and they obeyed Gustavus completely. When he wished to punish the enemy, he ordered his men to loot and kill, but they only did this at his command, not to satisfy their own wishes. The Swedish army was loyal to its leader, and this enabled Gustavus to score two great victories in Germany. The first was at Brainfield in September 1st, 631, when the Swedish forces met the Austrian Imperial Army, led by Count Tilly. The Swedish army won the battle with only 2,000 losses compared to the enemy losses of almost 20,000. The next major conflict was at Lutzen in November 1632, when Gustavus's forces met the Imperial Army under its new commander, Wallenstein. Gustavus personally led his men into action, and it was while riding to take control that he lost his life. The army did not give up but fought all the harder and eventually won the battle, but with severe losses. Gustavus did not manage to create a united Protestant Europe, but he is remembered for his military genius in combining the use of infantry, cavalry, and artillery so that his army became the most professional of the day. He changed forever the way in which wars would be fought in Europe. And now we go to Italy to hear of Garibaldi, the Italian patriot. There had been a time when Italy was one of the most powerful countries in Europe. From Rome, her legions had marched to conquer much of the world. From Rome, the Pope controlled the Christian church throughout the whole of Western Europe. But a series of invasions by other nations from the fifth century on had torn apart the once proud country. In 1807, the year when a future liberator named Giuseppe Garibaldi was born, 
The Italians were crushed beneath the iron heel of the Austrians. It seemed impossible that Italy would ever break free. But a series of revolutions, especially the French Revolution, set Italians hoping and planning. The Congress of Vienna that met in 1814 divided Italy into eight separate kingdoms, with the Austrians more firmly in control than ever. Things seemed hopeless. But a number of Italian patriots still met secretly to scheme and work for the Day of Liberation. They were led by a young Guianese idealist named Giuseppe Mazzini. The movement was called Young Italy. One who was very moved by Mazzini's talk of an Italy freed from Austrian rule was the young sailor Giuseppe Garibaldi. Garibaldi raised the standard of revolt, and twice he failed. But in 1834, Garibaldi had to escape to South America, with a death sentence hanging over him. While there, he formed the Italian Legion, led an army and local revolution, and became known as the hero Montevideo. After 14 years of exile, he returned to Italy to take part in the revolution 1848. This too ended in utter failure, and Garibaldi had to flee once more. This time he reached New York, where he became a successful businessman, amassed a considerable fortune. In 1859, Austria went to war with France. This was Garibaldi's chance. He sailed at once for Italy and raised a small army. But France made peace with Austria. So his now famous army of a thousand red shirts landed in Sicily and crushed the army of the King of Naples, to whom Sicily supposedly belonged. With 25,000 men, he crossed into mainland of Italy. He had only to appear before a town for it to open its gates to him. French troops were still in the papal state of Rome, but in 1870, they were withdrawn, and Italy was free at last. Garibaldi died in 1882, but his name as a freedom fighter lives on. <laughs>